The pandemic slowed tech job growth in most of the biggest employment centers, including Chicago, as work from anywhere became reality. And I'll talk with David Manilow, who's back with restaurant recommendations in Chicago's Ukrainian Village neighborhood, and he'll share highlights from a recent interview he did with the owners of Trizub Ukrainian Kitchen. First of all, I think, you know, from my standpoint, Chicago and the world is watching like the strength and courage and grace of the Ukrainian people. And just been like, you know, absolutely touched by, you know, what's going on there. Can can you describe a little bit? You're from Ukraine. Describe a little bit about what the what the people are like. I always say that Ukrainian people are super special because they are very kind. They are very friendly and very social. That's the thing probably I like the most because you can imagine how great parties, weddings, Christianings we have there. It's hard to believe how the neighbors can just meet for a coffee and chat for hours, how everybody helps each other without any uh, reward, of course, any money. I think like every nation has something special, but for me, Ukrainian people are with the big soul. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, March 9th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. David Manilow is back for our weekly conversation about the business of food, the joy of eating, and the challenges of working in the service industry. And uh, David, you've been taking a look at how some Chicago restaurants have been supporting Ukraine right now. Tell me about that. Yes, we've talked before about how philanthropic the restaurant community is here. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're really stepping up for Ukraine. Hog Salt Hospitality, which is an Ocheval and Bavets and several other restaurants did a GoFundMe uh, campaign with World Central Kitchen, which is Chef Jose Andres's fabulous organization. They raised $103,000 already. Wow. 25,000 meals they're going to serve just by what they've raised. And coming up on March 16th, which is next week uh, at Navy Pier from 6 to 9, uh, Tony Priolo of Piccolo Sonio has um, set up a wonderful Chicago Cooks for Ukraine fundraiser, a big benefit with lots of known chefs, Sarah Stegner of um, of uh, Prairie Grass Cafe, uh, Jason Hamill of Lula, uh, Eric Williams, Rick Bayless, uh, Beverly Kim was just nominated for James Beard, Brian Jupiter, uh, Meg Gallus, Carlos Gaetan, Joe Flam, just a bunch of really great chefs. Tickets will go on sale soon, but if you look it up, Chicago Cooks for Ukraine, they're just putting it together. So last match should be great. I've just kind of been walking around seeing a lot of signs and a lot of restaurant windows, Ukrainian flags, things like that. It does seem like a lot of restaurants are doing what they can to support Ukraine right now. David, you visited with the folks that run Trizub Ukrainian Kitchen in the Ukrainian village. That is a great place. What did they have to say? 
I talked about Natalia Kupri and Myron Lewicki, her husband and wife, and who owned the restaurant. I think it was the first interview she's done, and she was just basically saying it's it's almost you know unreal what's happening that she can't believe that this is actually going on. She's from Ukraine. Uh, Myron's parents are from Ukraine, and he's born here. You know, I talked to him a lot about you know what the culture, what the people of Ukraine are like. I think like every nation has something special, but for me, Ukrainian people are with the big soul. That's what I really appreciate about my nation. Yeah, there's a certain warmth and just like kind of togetherness that you, you notice. Yes, yes. Like really like one big family. And, and tell me a little bit about a typical meal. What What's the food like in Ukraine? And of course, it tries up as well. So when I came here, my husband was laughing um, of me because I was like, he was telling me that I could eat dinner for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about breakfast, we have a lot of possibilities. So that's not just eggs and um, and something with them. We love baking things, all the pastries. The lightest probably one would be um, pastry with coffee. And that's that's we have for centuries going on there. And the heaviest would be, you know, leftovers from the dinner. <laughs> Sometimes you have to start the breakfast heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we can do that too. <laughs> Trisub's a great place. Trisub is actually trident uh, in English. And, and the coat of arms, the Ukrainian coat of arms, is a blue shield with a, a gold trident, if you ever look at it. So he's very, very immersed in Ukrainian culture. And he actually wants to teach... Uh, Chicagoans and anybody who comes into the restaurant about Ukrainian culture because he believes, of course, there's a lot of misinformation going on. Putin could not stand the fact that Ukraine was prospering. I mean, there were restaurants and cafes, beautiful places springing up all, all over the place. There was a bakery in Kharkiv, which is now half destroyed by bombs. The pastries that this lady made, they're works of art. And I mean, this was kind of, you know, this cultural scene was just blossoming all over the place. Lviv, which is where my parents are from, ha has more cafes per square meter than any other city, downtown area in the world. And I mean, you know, people were just really doing really well. And I think Putin just couldn't stand that. He could not stand to have a free democratic country prosper right next to Russia. Ukrainian village is, as you know, part of the like West Town community, right? In between Division of Grand, Western and Damon. A lot of Ukrainians settled there, and there's still a lot of Ukrainian churches and restaurants there, including Trizum. And how has business been since all this has been going on recently? He said that they're kind of like become a little hub, and business uh, has you know increased because more and more Chicagoans want su to support Ukrainian restaurants. And I think they also want to learn a little bit about Ukrainian culture and, and the food. You know, Ukrainians are 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 famous for their hospitality. I mean, anytime you visit... A Ukrainian family, you may have seen memes and things like that. It's like, you know, there's a table laid out there with like 500 dishes on it. And I mean, that's literally what it is. If you go into a Ukrainian's house, they're going to ask you any questions or anything like that. They're just going to start getting the food out. And by the time you leave, you're going to end up eating whether you want to or not. You know, it's going to be either voluntary or it's going to be coerced, but you're going to you're going to eat a meal by the time you leave. And, you know, what What I thought was really interesting uh, about your conversation with them is Myron pointed out how that restaurant opened right around the same time that Russia invaded Crimea. Right. And so he said that, that before that, 
people just kind of had no kind of knowledge of Ukraine at all and what it is? My father was uh, was a 17-year-old boy when uh, the Russians invaded in the Second World War. And so he went into the underground. He fought for four years in the underground. And then when the Russians had completely just uh, taken over the country and there was no hope, um, he ended up uh, winding up in like Slovakia and, and then emigrating out. And my mother, um, she was a a young, just a young girl. And actually her sister was also in another branch of the Ukrainian underground, like more of the, the, the literary branch, so to speak. And so she got sent to Siberia when the Russians came, the rest of her, of the family, including my mother, they escaped. Uh, and her father was a restaurant owner, coincidentally in Lviv, sort of the Western capital. And he knew that businessmen or West, restaurant owners, nobody, anybody who had anything was not going to fare very well under the Russian government. So he, he got out of town as quickly as he could. He just couldn't, couldn't manage to take his other daughter with him because she was already in prison for uh, spreading leaflets about uh, Ukrainian freedom and this sort of thing. So actually she was, um, she wasn't even spreading leaflets. What happened is she she had some kind of a secretarial position and she had typed up a leaflet and the way the typewriter ribbon worked, they were able to detect what she had written on the typewriter and they arrested her for that. He really wants to kind of explore Ukrainian culture and he go, he'll go way back, like a thousand years back when you talk to him. Yeah, and there's a lot of interesting Ukrainian art in that space and a lot of interesting things. What did they recommend on the menu? Well, I will say that Natalia recommends the Varniki. Now, Varniki is basically pierogi, right? And they do it. They they spend a lot of time. They do it in all different colors. But as she explains, they don't, like, use dye. They'll use beet juice to make it red and spinach water to make it green. So we are very proud to have uh, the Varaniki platter mix. So that's four colors or four kinds of Varaniki. And we are very proud because at that time in Ukraine, we had just white Varaniki with different filling. Instead of using water to make the dough, we do um, natural juices. So like spinach juice, you know, we fresh squeeze spinach, <laughs> baby spinach, because it's got that, that super natural color. You can't get them from food coloring. Oh, so we do the beet juice, carrot juice, and we use turmeric for the yellow ones. But that's so cool when you get that platter with four different colors. And the fillings are also super excited. Probably my favorite one, it is... Um, uh, spicy beef with uh, banana peppers. For the for the pork, we add uh, wine and uh, plums. Those are the combination we thought of, and everyone comes with a different sauce, every kind. And probably that's still number one dish that uh, that people just appreciated and are super excited. And and they're like dumplings or pierogi, is that? Yes, yeah, dumplings, pierogies, varanik, yeah, yeah. I love how excited you get when you're talking about it. You know, because that's uh, <laughs> restaurant is part of my life now, and especially, especially like uh, being um, out of Ukraine. The restaurant is my little Ukraine here, so everything is happening here just just makes me super happy. <laughs> they, they have kind of like modern Ukrainian, right? So they'll have the borscht and the goulash and the paprikash, but they'll also have you know umami buckwheat bowl. And they'll have um, 
they'll have things like um, Carpathian wild mushroom soup, which sounds great, right? And I think, you know, Ukrainian food is, uh, you know, I think it's a little heavier and it's perfect for this time of year. We use a lot of potatoes, starchy things in our diet, but you know, we don't have uh, overweight people because people are moving so much they are on their feet all the time. It doesn't matter if you have a car or two and you don't have a car. They're just being around and, and walking. Ukrainian are great dancers. So all that exercises um, help us to eat flour and potatoes and still be fit. And there's two other restaurants, Ukrainian restaurants, that are all within walking distance. This is like you're talking about 2200 to 2500 West Chicago Avenue. Right. So so there's Trizub. There's also a chocolate. Now, chocolate means chocolate. And chocolate is really more of a, a breakfast place and a pastry place. They have outstanding kind of like mousse filled cakes and really good breakfasts and, and run by like, a, you know, a, a family right there. And it's very charming. And I've been there a bunch of times and it's really, really good. And everything's homemade. And, you know, whether you're just getting an omelet or you're getting a pastry, really, really good. And the last one that's down there is like a six-table buffet place. Have you ever been to Old Live? Oh, I know of that place, but I've never been there. <laughs> I know. It's been there for a long time. It's just this like cozy, little, completely genuine Ukrainian experience, which is just, you know, fabulous. And it's, it's great that those places like that, you can still find a place. Like that's what's great about living in the city is you can find a six-table Ukrainian buffet place that's serving authentic food. All right. Well, thanks so much, David. Always a pleasure. And I know we're coming up on James Beard Award season, so perhaps we'll we'll dive into that a bit next time. I'd love to. Coming up, researchers at Northwestern Medicine say long COVID could be linked to symptoms of anxiety. We'll talk about that and more right after this. You're invited to join Cranes for our Spring Real Estate Forum, a conversation with Fritz Kagey. When he took office in 2018, Fritz Kagey set out to make the Cook County property tax assessment process more accurate, transparent, and fair. In a conversation with Cranes senior reporter Albie Galoon, Kagey will discuss the steps he's taken to accomplish those goals, the obstacles he has encountered, and what lies ahead as his campaign for re-election gears up. To learn more and find out how to attend, visit Chicago Business Business.com slash events. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's John Pletz reports that in Chicago and several other large traditional tech centers, including Boston and Los Angeles, tech job growth declined or slowed during 2020, the first year of the pandemic and the most recent period for which data is available. According to federal jobs data from EMSI Burning Glass that was analyzed by the Brookings Institution, Chicago's total tech employment slipped 0.8 percent to just under 102,000 jobs in 2020 from 2019, compared with average annual growth of 2.4 percent between 2015 and 2019. Boston's tech employment dropped 0.2 percent in 2020, and L.A.'s growth also fell to 0.2 percent from a previous annual growth rate of 5.6 percent, according to the data. COVID-19 spawned stay-home orders for public health and safety that dramatically opened up the possibility of working from anywhere. So even the dominant tech centers like Silicon Valley and the Bay Area saw tech job growth slowing in 2020 from prior years 
years. All but one of the 10 largest metro areas by tech employment saw a reduction in the pace of job growth in 2020. And that was New York. Its growth rate increased to 4.9 percent from 3.5 percent, according to Brookings. Only Chicago and Boston saw outright declines in tech jobs. Pletz also reports that smaller cities with reputations for high quality of life and moderate costs of living, like Madison, Wisconsin and Chapel Hill, Durham, North Carolina, enjoyed the largest increases. Tech jobs in Chapel Hill and Durham grew 5.2 percent between 2019 and 2020, which is more than double its pace between 2015 and 2019, according to Brookings. Madison grew at a 6.2% clip, up from 3.6% annually in the previous four years. Nashville edged up slightly to 6.5% growth from its already strong pre-COVID growth rate of 6.2%. Charlotte, North Carolina's growth tripled to 3.4% in 2020, although it does have about a fourth of the tech jobs at Chicago. The Brookings report also said that growth rates declined in several Midwest cities. Columbus, Ohio, where Intel plans to build several semiconductor factories, had a 4% decline in 2020 after registering growth between 2015 and 2019. Also in 2020, Milwaukee declined 2.3% and Ann Arbor, Michigan, 1.6%. Detroit fared even worse, pivoting from 0.4% annual growth to a 6% decline. Indianapolis slipped to 1.1% growth. But St. Louis and Cincinnati bucked the trend. St. Louis saw growth increase to 4.8%, and Cincinnati also saw the pace of tech job growth rise to 3.8%. And while Pletz points out in his reporting that it's too early to draw any real conclusions from a single year of data, the results nonetheless are worth watching. Technology is a key source of economic growth, providing above-average wages and outsized wealth creation for founders, investors, and workers. Brookings data noted that during the previous decade, tech jobs grew 4.4% a year nationwide, nearly triple the rate of the overall economy. Find more detail on this story and many others at chicagobusiness.com. Wheat futures reached new highs on Tuesday, highlighting the severe fallout for global food supplies due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The war essentially cuts off shipments from a region that accounts for a quarter of global grains trade and the bulk of sunflower oil. Most active wheat futures in Chicago jumped to 13635 a bushel at the start of the trading session, representing a 77% gain in the staple grains price this year. The last time the grain was near these levels came during a 2008 food crisis that sparked political unrest around the world. Rapeseed and canola futures also hit new records, and corn has also climbed by a quarter this year. Germany's agriculture minister said in a statement on Tuesday, quote, Putin's war endangers the nutrition of people worldwide. Combined, Russia and Ukraine had about 14 million tons of wheat and 18.5 million tons of corn left to ship this season, about 7 percent of total global grains trade, according to the U.N. Futures had also been running ahead of the cash market in the U.S., where some buyers have been resisting the high prices. Meanwhile, there's been concern over the condition of the wheat crops in China and the U.S. Bloomberg notes that global food costs are already at a record, and the surge in grains and cooking oil prices since the onset of the war in Ukraine is likely to send them higher. That jump has triggered concerns about food security and harkens back to more than a decade ago, when price spikes led to unrest in over 30 nations. 
Governments around the world are taking steps to safeguard food supplies. For example, Serbia will start curbing wheat exports and Hungary is banning grain shipments. Argentina, Turkey and Indonesia have also moved to increase control over local products. China, the biggest importer of corn and soybeans and one of the top buyers of wheat in the world, is also looking to secure essential supplies. Boeing has stopped titanium purchases from Russia, while rival Airbus continues to source from the country, highlighting the uncertain path for aerospace manufacturers and many other sectors following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Boeing said it doesn't anticipate a major disruption to aircraft output after an initiative in recent years to diversify its metal sourcing. The decision to halt comes after the Chicago-based plane maker said last week that it would suspend major operations in Moscow. Bloomberg reports that aerospace companies have been bracing for the fallout on titanium supplies from Russia's attack on Ukraine, in part to financial sanctions that make payments to Russian firms difficult. Russia's VSMPO Avisma Corporation supplies nearly a quarter of global titanium, and Boeing announced a new deal with the company in November. The Wall Street Journal reported earlier that Boeing, which had been stockpiling titanium in recent months, gets about a third of the metal it needs from Russia. Airbus, which has also suspended operations in Moscow and stopped providing parts and maintenance to Russian customers, told Bloomberg that it is sourcing titanium from Russia and other countries, but that the purchases are made in accordance with all sanctions and export control regulations. Aside from Boeing, other aerospace firms are also reportedly looking for alternative titanium supplies, which is used in airplane parts from engines to fasteners. A new study by Northwestern Medicine finds that the puzzling neurologic symptoms some COVID-19 patients develop as part of long COVID can be connected with symptoms of anxiety and are related to damage to neurons and activation of glial cells, a sign of brain inflammation. A Northwestern Medicine statement said the study of biomarkers that identify brain inflammation could help determine what diagnostic tests and treatments will work best for those with long COVID. The statement also said the research could go a long way to further the study of the mechanics of it and perhaps even the biomechanics of anxiety in general. The statement further said that evidence of a biological basis of the neuropsychiatric symptoms experienced by long haulers could be helpful in validating patients' experiences, which is welcome because many COVID long haulers often express frustration that their lingering complaints are often dismissed, they said. The Northwestern Medicine NeuroCOVID-19 Research Group has found that neurological issues for both hospitalized COVID patients and long haulers who weren't hospitalized seem rampant. In October of 2020, its research showed neurological manifestations in 82% of hospitalized patients studied. In March of 2021, the group found that 85 of 100 non-hospitalized COVID long haulers experienced four or more neurologic symptoms that impacted their quality of life and in some cases their cognitive abilities. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, David Manilow. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.